good evening, everyone. I'm uh, David Hempton, the Dean of the uh, Divinity School, and I am delighted to welcome all of you here, colleagues, guests, distinguished speakers, panelists, um, to this important conference entitled West Africa and the Maghreb Reassessing Intellectual Connections in the 21st Century, um, which is the second major conference that my uh, wonderful colleague, Professor Usman Khan, has organized at the Divinity School in recent years. So Professor Khan, as you know, is the Prince Al-Walid bin Talal Professor of Contemporary Islamic Religion and Society at HDS, uh, and Professor of Near Eastern Languages and Civilization in FAS. The first very successful conference which took place in February uh, 2017 was entitled uh, Texts, Knowledge, Practice, The Meaning of Scholarship in Muslim Africa. So my real sincere thanks go to uh, Usman, uh, who conceived and organized this second groundbreaking conference, together with one of our uh, fine doctoral students in the Committee on the Study of Religion, Nor uh, Norbert Litoyne. Norbert, do you want to stand up? And, um... So thank you both for all you've done to get us here. Um, I know a lot of thought, work, and effort went into the um, preparation of this conference. So if organizing and running the conference was not enough, however, uh, after teaching a summer school seminar for Harvard students in Senegal all summer, uh, Professor Khan will also deliver the keynote address tonight with the intriguing title, The Transformation of the Pilgrimage Tradition in West Africa. And my colleague, uh, Dean Janet Gatso, just sitting here, will have the privilege of introducing uh, Usman Khan to you in just a few minutes. But first, um, uh, my thanks go to the staff of the Al-Walid program and the HD Office for Academic Affairs, who assisted Professor Khan in this undertaking. Furthermore, we're very grateful to the many sponsors at Harvard University for their financial support to bring together um, an, uh, uh, another important conference, and we look forward to many more collaborations in future years. So you can see at the back of the program the people who have helped us uh, bring this off, and it's quite a a great list of um, one Harvard at its best, um, which doesn't always happen at Harvard, so we've got to celebrate it when it does happen. Um, so it is a delight to see this interdisciplinary and interschool collaborations around this, so we're grateful to all of those people. My thanks also go to the, uh, my uh, colleagues on the HDS faculty, who will chair five panels with 21 scholars and participants and we will also have the opportunity to hear a very special concert as part of this conference uh, tomorrow evening. So we will begin tonight with Professor Khan's keynote lecture and then move on to three panels tomorrow which will explore Sufism and Sufi orders in Muslim Africa, prayers, invocations in the talismanic tradition, and reevaluating the historic core curriculum. And then on Saturday, uh, we finish with the symposium with jihadi ideology, what's new and what's not, before ending with a session on new intellectual connections on Saturday midday. I know that everyone participating in the panels and in the conference have come from near and far, which is unfortunately not so easy these days, as some of you found out. Um, so thank you for making the effort to be here. We're really, really grateful. Um, uh, so we can exchange ideas and deepen our knowledge. Your collaboration is most important for the overall field of African studies here at Harvard and way beyond. And it's my hope that publications and public discourse will be influenced and guided by your pioneering and important findings uh, presented here. 
So welcome everyone. We are really delighted to have you with us. Um, uh, especially those of you who have traveled quite a ways to be here. I've talked to many of you already, and I know you've had uh, long journeys, so thanks for making the effort. Before we invite tonight's speaker to deliver the keynote address, I'll briefly introduce my wonderful colleague, Janet Gyatso, um, Hershey Professor of Buddhist Studies and Academic Dean at the Divinity School. Not only is Janet uh, an exceptional academic dean, uh, she is also a distinguished scholar and much-in-demand teacher. She's recently published uh, an important prize-winning book entitled Being Human in a Buddhist World, an intellectual history of medicine in early modern Tibet, which focuses upon alternative early modernities and the conjunctions and disjunctures between religious and scientific epistemologies in Tibetan medicine uh, from the 16th right through to the 18th centuries. It's a wonderful book, uh, so go read and prove her royalty account. So, without further ado, it's now my great pleasure to hand the microphone over to my colleague Janet, who will introduce our distinguished keynote speaker for the evening, uh, Professor Usman Khan. So, welcome everyone to Harvard, and please enjoy the conference. We're really very glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and... Welcome everyone. We are really indeed uh, thrilled to have this conference happening. I'm just going to give a short introduction to Professor Usman Khan and I think this is like carrying calls to Newcastle because all of you probably know him very well. But, and also David Hempton also gave actually half of what I was gonna say already. <laughs> so I'll just say it again. <laughs> Professor Usman Umar Khan is Prince Awalid bin Talal, Professor of Contemporary Islamic Religion and Society and he's also Professor of Near Eastern Languages and Civilization in the Faculty of Arts and Science at Harvard. He joined Harvard Divinity School in uh, 2012. He's the first Prince Awalid bin Talal Professor of Contemporary Islamic Religion and Society at HDS. And before that, he was Associate Professor of International Public Affairs at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. Uh, his research is in the history of Islamic religious institutions and organizations, uh, primarily since the 18th century, and he also documents the intellectual history of Islam in Africa. Uh, he also studies Muslim globalization. Uh, so his book, Homeland, is the arena, uh, religion, transnationalism, and the integration of Senegalese immigrants in America, which was from 2010. Uh, looks at the community of Sen Senegalese uh, Im immigrants to the United States in New York and the importance of these immigrants assigned to their religious communities for the organization of their lives. And his other books include uh, Muslim Modernity in Postcolonial Nigeria, which was from 2003. And he has a recent book, Beyond Timbuktu, an intellectual history of Muslim West Africa. Uh, he, in addition to all those other scholarly activities, um, Professor Khan serves as a counselor to the Muslim students at Harvard Divinity School where he is truly a much loved uh, guide and teacher and really goes way out of his way to help create community among the Muslim students here at, at the Divinity School. We're extremely grateful to him for doing that. And he also is very instrumental in a project that we're trying to get off the ground, uh, which we would call the Muslim Ministry Initiative. This is part of what has happened at Harvard Divinity School in recent years, was to expand the teaching of ministers and public servants 
in Christianity primarily uh, has now expanded to uh, uh, people working in Buddhist communities and we would like to see it also expand to people working in Muslim commu communities. This involves a lot of thinking and, and uh, trying to raise funding actually for such a project. We are already offering some courses in this area and Professor Khan is extremely helpful as a guide uh, for this effort and I'm really grateful to him for that. Uh, this conference was indeed sponsored by a lot of different um, instruments at Harvard University, but uh, one of them was the Harvard Divinity School. We have a, uh, a fund of money every year, of faculty grants for uh, conferences or other kinds of research activities that faculty propose. And this conference, as described, really felt, fell squarely in the purview of the kinds of things we really, really like to fund. And so we're so glad to have this conference here. It really looks fantastic. Uh, his talk tonight is entitled The Transformation of the Pilgrimage Tradition in West Africa. So Professor Khan, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Janet. Thank you, Dean Hampton, for introducing me, both of you. Uh, and I would like to thank all those who uh, helped us organize this conference. We are extremely grateful and thank you, thank you all for coming. The greater pilgrimage to Mecca was institutionalized in the ninth year of the Islamic calendar. The performance of the ritual takes annually place in the first half of the Muslim month of Dil Hijjah, culminating in the station at Mount Arafat on the 10th day of that month, since and virtually without interruption, Muslims from all over the world have headed annually to the Holy Lands to fulfill this religious obligation, which is incumbent on all Muslims who can afford it. The Hajj is the opportunity for the atonement of all past sins. It is unique among the great religious pilgrimages for its doctrinal centrality, its geographic focus, its historical continuity, and its size and global coverage. <clears throat> Alongside and often associated with the Hajj is the tradition of ziyara or pious visitation in special mosques or mausoleums of Muslim holy people. The most important such mausoleums for Muslims is that of the Prophet Muhammad located in Medina, about 400 kilometers from Mecca. Although not part of the ritual of the greater pilgrimage, the trip to Medina is made by pilgrims performing the greater pilgrimage or the lesser pilgrimage known as Umrah. In Medina, pilgrims visit the mausoleum of the Prophet, his companions, members of his family, and Muslim martyrs and some historical sites of great significance for the early Muslim community, such as Mount Uhud or the mosque of Tuqibla, Masjid al-Qiblatayn. Visitation ziyara takes also place in mausoleums of Shiite imams or Sufi sheikhs in Baghdad, in Karbala, in Fez, in Cairo, in Ajmal Sharif, in India, but also Tuba in Senegal. For a long time, the pilgrimage was linked 
to the study, to the tradition of study, as most pilgrims were scholars who spent time in centers of learning along the way to and in the Holy Lands to study, to acquire books, and seek scholarly credentials. Like elsewhere in the Muslim world, religious travel in West Africa was motivated by those very three reasons. The first being to perform the greater pilgrimage to the Holy Lands. The second, to visit the shrines of holy Islamic figures. Last but not least, the third type of travel, which could be combined with any of the first two, is the search for knowledge, which is typically sanctioned by the award of an authorization to transmit that knowledge, ijazah. In the 20th century, a combination of factors contributed to radically transform the nature and participation <clears throat> to the pilgrimage in West Africa, the Holy Lands, and for that matter, globally. Technological progress played an important role in this transformation. Before the 20th century, pilgrims traveled by foot and or camel back from West Africa to the Holy Lands. The trip lasted a minimum of two years each way, and a round trip lasting 10 years was not uncommon. The journey from Mecca to Medina took a minimum of one week. The travel by camel of the distance of 100 kilometers separating Mecca from Jeddah, where pilgrims traveling on board landed, lasted two days. Now, West African pilgrims, and indeed the majority of pilgrims from the 168 countries participating in the Hajj, can fly the same day from their country to the Holy Lands, and comfortable and affordable buses cover the distance from Mecca to Medina in four hours, and from Jeddah to Mecca in one hour. For centuries prior to the rise of nation states, many pilgrims traveled without identification or vaccination against the deadly disease that decimated them. In the course of the 20th century, several international agreements between Saudi Arabia and countries sending pilgrims ensured the acquisition of adequate documentation and vaccination prior to traveling to the Holy Lands. This considerably reduced the disappearance and death toll due to disease. Before the 20th century, travel within Saudi Arabia was unsafe, as was trans-Saharan travel. Bedouins routinely looted pilgrim caravans. In the 20th century, with the consolidation of the state of Saudi Arabia, the insecurity was eradicated and pilgrims traveled safely from one part to the other of the Holy Lands. Until the mid-20th century, the holy mosques of Mecca and Medina could host only a few thousand worshippers. So you, you see here... Uh, uh, old picture of the Holy Mosque. In the last four decades, tens of billions of dollars have been invested by Saudi Arabia to considerably expand the hosting infrastructures of these 
the sacred sites. Now, let us look at the uh, picture of Medina now. <clears throat> In West Africa, most of the funding for pilgrimage was raised locally until the 1960s. At the turn of the 20th century, a sizable West African Muslim diaspora settled in the West. This diaspora opened new routes by investing abundant material resources in maintaining and creating ties between their homeland centers of pilgrimage, the Muslim Holy Lands, North Africa, and their Western host society. Until the mid-20th century, West African pilgrims were mostly male. Now, female pilgrims are almost equal to their male counterparts, and some years they outnumber males. Up until recently, the travel of pilgrims culminated in the Holy Lands. Now, in one trip, many pilgrims can perform pilgrimage in holy sites in North Africa, <coughs> on their way to or from Mecca, and they can include other global cities such as Dubai, Shanghai, and Beijing to their trip, especially business people. Last but not least, the overwhelming majority of West African pilgrims were motivated by the search for knowledge and scholarly credentials prior to the 20th century. Now this peripatetic tradition has completely disappeared due to the rise of nation states with an effective control of their borders. Arab states of North Africa and the Gulf do give student visa and scholarships to support studies of Muslims from all over the world, as they give tourist visa for pilgrims. But these are two completely different processes involving different categories of people. Prior to the 20th century, the pilgrimage was the main source of supply of scholarly works. Student pilgrims would buy or beg for manuscripts or spend time in the Holy Land to copy them. Their bags will be full of books when they return home. Now, many of those books are available for free download from some Islamic websites and can be accessed anywhere in the world, or even purchased in local bookstores in their home countries. Books no longer figure prominently among items brought, by, brought back by pilgrims. Instead, the pilgrimage has been the main, or has become the main source of supply for video clips on the Holy Lands. All pilgrims have smartphones to capture video clips at each moment of the pilgrimage. They share these video clips via WhatsApp with friends from all over the world. They also bring huge bottles of water from the well of Zemzem offered graciously, uh, graciously in the Holy Land. Actually, 3.7 million gallons of uh, water were offered this year. As well as clothes in fashion in the Holy Lands. In fact, the widespread popularity of Arab clothing in many areas of West Africa is linked directly to the explosion in number of pilgrims from the region. As more and more people travel to pilgrimage sites in North Africa and Saudi Arabia, and as China became involved in producing these clothes, 
at more affordable prices, they became increasingly popular in West Africa, whether those who wear them have gone on pilgrimage or not. In what follows, I will discuss how the pilgrimage tradition to the Holy Lands and North Africa was transformed. Next, I will analyze the emergence of new sites of pilgrimage in West Africa that parallel in scope the pilgrimage of the Holy Lands. I will also discuss the role that the West African diaspora played in connecting them. In connecting them. I will argue in conclusion that West Africa now hosts some of the largest religious gatherings in the world. By exploring these transformations, I will illustrate the connections between the rise of nation states in the Muslim world, globalization or the intensification of global interconnectedness, the transformation of material culture and intellectual history. Now I start with the, the transformation of the West African pilgrimage to Mecca from food and camelback to air travel. African Muslims have been performing the pilgrimage to Mecca for centuries. But the history of the pilgrimage before the 19th century is fully documented. The majority of the sources are unpublished travelogues. Learned pilgrims wrote travel narratives, but these exist in manuscript form and were never published due to the non-existence of the printing technology in West Africa before European colonialism. The most solid evidence available prior to the 20th century concerns royal pilgrimage. By the 11th century, a few West African kings had converted to Islam. The earliest recorded royal conversion to Islam is that of Warjabi, the king of Takrur, a kingdom in present-day northern Senegal. It was in 1040 that Warjabi converted to Islam and his people along with him. It was followed by the conversion of the king of Mandeng in 1050 and the Saifawa ruler of the kingdom of Kanem Borno in 1085. Mention of Takruri or Barnawi in reference to Takrur and Borno in Arab writings suggests that pilgrims from these regions were well known in the Holy Land since the 13th century. Several other kings converted subsequently and many of them performed the pilgrimage to Mecca. Renowned Arab and African authors have written on the royal African pilgrimage, including Al-Umari in his Masalik al-Absar wa Mamalik al-Amsar in Arabic. In, uh, in English, Pathways of, Visions, of Vision in the Realm of the Metropolis. Ibn Khaldun also in his uh, Prolegomena, Kitab al-Ibar. Al-Makrizi in his book entitled Molded Gold on Those Kings Who Made the Pilgrimage, Al-Dhahab al-Masbuk fi Dhikr Man Hajza Min al-Muluk in Arabic, a chapter of which deals with the kings of Takrur but also Ibn Battuta in his uh, journey, Rihla in Arabic. And finally, the famous uh, Timbuktu Chronicle, 17th century Timbuktu Chronicles. Chronicles. Two such royal pilgrimages have been abundantly chronicled. The first is that of Mali's emperor Mansa Musa. In the year 1324, Mansa Musa stayed in three days in Egypt in his way to Mecca. He distributed so much gold that his passage was recorded in great detail by Egyptians and other historians, even European historians. 
He brought books of Maliki jurisprudence to Mali and attracted uh, Muslim scholars to his kingdom as well. Kanem Borno has, has a long history of royal pilgrimage. According to the Diwan of the Sultans of Borno by Idris Aloma, 20 kings of the Saifawa dynasty who ruled Kanem Borno from the 11th to the 19th century performed the pilgrimage to Mecca. Another pilgrimage worthy of note is that of Askia Muhammad of Songhai in 1497. He met the Abbasid Caliph in Cairo who appointed him Khalifa for the Bilal Sudan or the land of the black, which differs to Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, there were two main uh, pilgrimage routes from West Africa. Both of them were also trading routes. The first uh, from uh, <clears throat> the first was from uh, uh, Mali through Niger, northeastern Nigeria, Chad, Sudan, and Egypt to the Arabian Peninsula. Most West African pilgrims took that road. You could see in the map the, the many roads. Uh, they preferred that road because of the availability of wells and grazing lands for the animals of the caravan. The other was the route through Mauritania, Morocco, and ultimately Egypt. It offered the possibility of spending time in prestigious centers of learning, uh, such as Shingit in Mauritania, Fez, Tlemcen, Tunis, Kairouan, and of course Cairo. Unlike North African states, which provided care and assistance to pilgrims, including sending a mahmal, a regular dispatching of gifts, organizing an institutionalized caravan led by an Amir al-Hajj, there was no institutionalized pilgrimage in pre-colonial West African states, but West African pilgrims could join some of the caravans departing from North Africa to the Hajj. Aside from the recorded royal pilgrimage, we know very little about the pilgrimage tradition before the 19th century. At the turn of the 20th century, Another drive toward Mecca took place uh, called the Hijra Doctrine, the Hijra Doctrine by Sudanese historian Al-Naqar. This movement was prompted by the colonial expansion of the late uh, 19th century. Europeans who had settled in the West uh, African coast since the 16th century conquered in about two decades 90% of the African continent from after the Berlin Conference 1885 uh, to, uh, to, to, to 1905. And, uh, and uh, many Muslims who did not want to live under uh, non-Muslim rule fled to the Holy Lands. And the learned among them played an important role in the consolidation of the rule of King Abdulaziz ibn Saud, the founder of the modern state of uh, Saudi Arabia, and they assisted him in the field of teaching, preaching, both inside and outside uh, Saudi Arabia. Although the pilgrimage is of utmost ritual importance for Muslims, only a small number of West African Muslims, or for that matter, of all Muslims, performed the pilgrimage prior to the mid-20th century. Until the mid-1950s, the total number of pilgrims rarely exceeded 100,000 which means that about 0.2% of the Muslim global population would expect to complete this fifth pillar of Islam. At the beginning of the 21st century, the number of pilgrims exceeded 2 million, reaching 3.1 million in 2012, including 
million international pilgrims and 1.4 million of Saudi. This is still a, a, a tiny uh, percentage of the Muslim global population now approaching 1.8 billion, but the number grew by a factor of 30 in just a few decades. Given the huge log logistical challenges of hosting so many people in pilgrimage sites, the Saudi state, upon the recommendation of the organization of the Islamic Conference dated 1987, fixed the quota of pilgrims at 1,000 pilgrims per 1 million of the populations of state sending pilgrims. One of the conditions of the pilgrimage is that candidates must financially afford to perform it. But even those who could afford were dissuaded because the trip entailed many risks, especially in security in the region traversed by pilgrims and disease. To reach the holy mosques, pilgrims had to travel through territories governed by tribal leaders who considered themselves as absolute lords of their territories and exacted duties upon goods carried out through their dominions. To ensure the safety of pilgrims, duties were paid to the leaders of those tribes. Those duties were a budgeted part of the Ottoman government's Hajj expense, expenses when the Hijaz was under Ottoman rule. Its distribution, however, was all but transparent. The local government official in charge of the supervision of the pilgrimage, Amir al-Hajj, and the caravan commanders routinely withheld some of the monies destined to tribal leaders. They made generous payments to the most powerful and aggressive tribes and very little or nothing to weak tribes. In this context, tribes asserted their own terrifying credibility vis-a-vis -vis the government to maintain their position versus other rivals as Hajj protectors. Attacks again against caravans were commonplace. Very often, pilgrims were looted and sometimes killed by Bedouins. For this reason, the majority of pilgrims traveled in large groups and were armed to defend themselves if needed. Thus, many were dissuaded from traveling in the last uh, several centuries. Disease were also a major issue. Pandemics like cholera decimated pilgrims. In 1865, 15,000 out of 90,000 pilgrims died in Mecca. In addition to these risks shared equally by all pilgrims, West Africans were exposed to another risk, kidnapping and enslavement. Given the old racial prejudice against black people in the region, the kidnapping and enslavement and enslaving of black people was commonplace until the 20th century. And incidentally, black Muslims routinely experienced racial prejudice from other Muslims, either in the Holy Land or elsewhere. And this is a blind spot of which many are unaware. Now, several developments in the early 20th century changed the situation to enable West Africans to travel. The first was European colonial rule, which limited the geographic mobility of colonial subjects. All candidates had to seek a travel permit from the colonial bureaucracy. Colonial masters sponsored pilgrimage most of the time for their loyal subjects who traveled by boat to the Holy Lands. The second development was the subjugation 
of the Holy Lands by the dynasty of Al Saud. They established their authority on the entire peninsula, uh, on, the, on, on what is today Saudi Arabia, and were able to significantly improve the security situation. After World War II, dozens of Muslim majority countries became independent from European colonial rule. Taking the pilgrimage very seriously, they created an official body in charge of the organization of the pilgrimage, staffed by learned scholars and a medical team. This body takes care of all the needs of uh, pilgrims, from visa to vaccination to escorting them throughout the trip until the return home and teaching them how to perform the rituals of the pilgrimage. Finally, a series of conferences contributed to, to improve the overall conditions of the pilgrimage, including the Conference of Paris in, of 1930, in which sending countries signed agreements that contributed significantly to improve the conditions. According to the agreements, all countries would inform the Alexandria Office of the Pilgrimage of their approximate number of pilgrims and their itinerary at least two months before the pilgrimage. All sending countries would ensure that candidates for pilgrimage would be vaccinated against uh, cholera and smallpox. Small, uh, all sending countries would deliver proper pilgrimage ID with a picture to candidates after establishing that they possess a round-trip ticket to, uh, to, to the pilgrimage. And actually, now there, have, there is significant improvement, even more. Now, travel agents typically supply their pilgrims several forms of identification. These commonly include an ID with their visa number and the address of their residence in Mecca and Medina, a scarf with the name of their travel agents, and finally, bracelets with inserted tracking devices similar to those of prisoners, which allow the travel agents to locate them in the Holy Lands in case they are ever separated from the group. At the turn of the 21st century, new, development contrib new developments contributed to transform the pilgrimage even further. The oil wealth provided huge resources to Saudi Arabia. Hundreds of billions of dollars were invested in the pilgrimage industry. Since 1950, $100 billion was invested in the expansion of the Mosque of Mecca. By 2017, it became the largest mosque in the world capable of hosting 1.5 million worshippers. It is being further expanded to host a total of 2.2 million pilgrims. Before the expansion of the mosque, all rituals were performed at the ground level. Now, other levels were built where pilgrims, pilgrims can perform the main rituals to be accomplished uh, in the surroundings of the mosque of uh, the Kaaba, for example, the circumambulation of uh, the Kaaba, the hurried, the, the, hurried work, the hurried walk between the mounds of Safa and Marwa. And likewise in neighboring, uh, neighboring Minna, where the rituals of the lapidation of Saturn is performed, the ritual can be accomplished at three levels. The ritual of the great pilgrimage culminates at the Mount of Arafat, where all pilgrims spend the day. When I performed the pilgrimage for the first time in 1982, Arafat and Minna were in a desert where all pilgrims built a tent for one day and dismantled the tent at the end of the day with very poor material. Now they have been completely transformed. 
45,000 uh, 45, permanent tents have been established with air conditionings, toilets, and showers. Uh, would you show <laughs> can see from this video uh, what, what I was just saying that, you know, now uh, 45,000, you know, tents have been built uh, and uh, housing is organized in quarters for each nationality and all the 168 uh, countries sending their pilgrims have their own quarters. Another development is the growth of the religious tourism industry, both in the Holy Lands and the host country. <clears throat> uh, both in the right in the Holy Land and in, in, in the sending countries. In the vicinity of the Holy Land of Mecca and Medina, hundreds of huge hotels and apartments have been built to accommodate pilgrims from modest rooms to five-star hotels. The cost of the room or suite varies according to the period and standing of the hotels during the Hajj or the last 10 days of the month of Ramadan. A suite close to the Holy Mosque of Mecca costs several thousand dollars a night, but there is affordable housing for all pilgrims. These are typically farther from the mosque and rooms are shared by up to six or seven people. In sending countries, various strategies uh, have contributed to making the pilgrimage accessible to more people. Typically, uh, most people who travel from West Africa to the Holy Lands are offered the trip by relatives or other philanthropists, but many official institutions also budget some tickets for their employees and selection is made by an annual lottery. In Africa, as well as in the diaspora, there are many associations set up to sponsor uh, the pilgrimage, not just to Mecca, but also to North Africa, especially in the city of Fez, uh, where the founder of the Tijaniya Sufi order, Ahmad Tijani, was buried and this leads me to discuss a second major site of West African pilgrimage that is in Fez. Now, from the pilgrimage of scholars to the pilgrimage of lay people, the transformation of the West African pilgrimage to North Africa. The Tijaniya takes its name from its founder, Ahmed bin Mukhtar al-Tijani, who was born in 1739 in Ainu southern Algeria, where he received most of his education uh, an exceptionally gifted student, he memorized the Holy Quran at the age of seven and then uh, proceeded to study the main uh, subjects of Islamic knowledge. He also developed a great interest in Sufism and studied with major Sufi sheikh in uh, 18th century Morocco. In his youth, Ahmad Tijani was initiated uh, in several Sufi orders, including the Wazaniya, the Nasiriya, the Shadiliya, and the Khalwatiya. He traveled widely in North Africa and Asia to perform the pilgrimage, seek knowledge, and connect with uh, major Sufi teachers. The year 1784 is a landmark 
in the history of the Tijaniya Sufi order. It was in that year that Ahmad Tijani, so, so the story goes, saw the Prophet not in a dream but in reality while performing spiritual retreat in Busamhun in Algeria. And the Prophet informed him that he is the seal of all saints and instructed him to create his own Sufi order of, of the Tijaniya, which he did. In the following decade, the Tijaniya Tariqa started to spread in Algeria due to persecution from Ottoman authorities who ruled Algeria. Then Ahmad Tijani left his natal town of Ainumadi to settle in Fez. He was welcomed by the ruling Sultan Maulai Suleiman, who offered him a house in Fez, which still attracts uh, pilgrims. In addition, the Sultan invited him to join the Council of Scholars uh, of the court and receive a regular salary. At his death in 1815, he was buried in the Zawiya, uh, which he built in Fez. In the course of the 19th and 20th century, the Tijaniya spread to become a major articulation of global Islam. Its followings in the world runs in the tens of millions, and at least 90% of them are from sub-Saharan Africa and its diaspora in the West. Tijani followers in West Africa have made a huge contribution to its development. They have built schools, lodges, and initiated millions of people. But it's not just in number that sub-Saharan Africans dominate the Tijani. It's also in intellectual production, because some of the major uh, doctrinal elaboration of the Tijani was the work of West African uh, Tijani. Tijani on both shores of the Sahara have endeavored to maintain close ties through epistolary, epistolary exchanges, poems praising each other, and of course through pilgrimage from West Africa to Tijani Oli sites, as well as travel from North to West Africa. The pilgrimage from West Africa to Fez is as old as the Tijani itself. It has waxed and waned, involved many categories of people with various motivations, but has remained a link between Tijanis of North and West Africa for almost 200 years. In the 19th and first half of the 20th century, century, it was mostly scholars who performed the pilgrimage to Fez. The first is the Mauritanian scholar Idao Ali, Muhammad al-Hafiz, who died in 1830 and who was initiated into the Tijaniya by Ahmad Tijani himself. Most Senegambians' chains of transmission of the Tijaniya are traced to Muhammad al-Hafiz. Throughout the 19th century, it was mainly the religious elites who performed the pilgrimage to Fez. Abdullah Nyes, the founder of the Nyes branch of the Tijaniya, went to Fez in 1909, where he received the Ijaza Itla, full permission to initiate and appoint deputies of the Tijaniya. For Tijani scholars, the pilgrimage to Fez was a means to seek blessing at the shrine of the founder of the Tijaniya and the opportunity to accumulate prestigious chains of transmission that linked them directly to the Tijani establishment in Fez. After the consolidation of French colonial rule, Tijani leaders, some of whom were involved in anti-colonial activities, renounced armed resistance and pledged loyalty to the French with whom they collaborated for the duration of most of colonial rule. In the process of the consolidation of their rule, the French found it beneficial to cooperate with the uh, Muslim theorists and uh, particularly Tijani communities. But because they were literate in Arabic, 
Muslim leaders serve in the colonial bureaucracy as teachers, interpreters, and judges in Muslim tribunals. They engage in the colonial economy by cultivating cash crops. They urge their followers to abide by colonial laws, to pay taxes, and to be loyal to the French colonial state. But as proven by surveillance files on most Tijani leaders, the French never trusted them entirely. One of the greatest fears of European colonial powers throughout their rule was pan-Islamism, in other words, a large uh, transnational coalition of African Muslims against col colonial rule. To exercise, to exercise that fear, they restricted the movement of colonial subjects between North and West Africa. The French monitored the movement of African pilgrims to North Africa and the Hejaz closely. But nevertheless, among those Muslims allowed by the French colonial government to perform the pilgrimage, Tijani, Tijani's figure uh, prominently. Toward the end of colonial rule, the restrictions uh, of travel between North and West Africa were lifted. By the time of independence, pilgrims no longer needed the permission of colonial authorities to travel between these two regions. In addition, post-colonial states of North and West Africa endeavored to strengthen their cooperation. Morocco maintained diplomatic relations with African governments, but it also maintained parallel diplomacy with Sufi leaders and particularly prominent Tijani Sheikh. Because Morocco sheltered Ahmed Tijani when he fled his country, the Tijaniya has, be, has been an important component of Moroccan diplomacy toward West Africa. All three kings who ruled post-colonial Morocco, Mohammed V, Hassan II, and Mohammed VI, committed to maintain these ties. In addition to supporting the Zawiya of Fez, the Moroccan kings provided generous assistance to the building or renovation of major mosques in West Africa. They invited and offered five-star hospitality to West African Sufi leaders to spend Ramadan in Rabat as guests of the uh, king every year. They provided health care to all uh, major Tijani leaders in the best Moroccan hospitals, offered numerous scholarships directly to the Tijani Sheikh who sent their children and disciples study in Moroccan universities, Moroccan university, particularly the ancient Caribbean. It was in the early 1960s that the first full packages for the pilgrimage to Fez were organized. Built by the Chantier de l'Atlantique in Saint-Nazaire, France, and inaugurated in 1962 by French President Charles de Gaulle, the French boat Anserville transported regular chartered trips of Tijani pilgrims from Dakar to Casablanca. The trip was considerably shorter than the journey by camel, lasting only six days each way. At this period, pilgrimage and trade went hand in hand. Many pilgrims seized the opportunity of the pilgrimage to purchase goods in Morocco destined to be resold back home. The cost of the trip was relatively affordable and there was no weight limitation for the pilgrims. Pilgrim merchants could bring as many commodities as they wanted in 1973, the French boat Anserville was sold to the Chinese and renamed the Mingwa. In the 70s, the boat service tended to be replaced by air travel. Not only was the air fare higher than the boat fare, but airlines gave passengers a limited luggage, luggage allowance and charged a high fee for excess luggage. This caused the number of travelers 
to drop significantly from the mid-70s through the 90s. During this period, most pilgrims traveled individually or as part of small groups led by Tijani Sheikh. At the beginning of the 21st century, the rise of the tourism industry in West Africa revived the full package options. Several companies proposed affordable full package options. The Moroccan airline Royal uh, Air Maroc operates many flights from West Africa to Morocco, and all these flights um, include pilgrims to Fez. In addition, some tour operators offer packages combining visits uh, of Tijani sites and tourism in major destinations for tourists in Morocco, such as Casablanca, Rabat, Marrakesh. In Rabat, frequently visited sites include the Tour Hassan, the mausoleum of King Mohammed V and King Hassan II, but also the shrines of Sidi Arabi bin Saih, a prominent uh, 19th century uh, uh, Tijani scholar. In the old city of Marrakesh, founded by the Al-Muhad dynasty, are found the shrines of prominent Tijani sheikhs, such as Ahmed Skirij Ayashi and Sidi Muhammad Kansusi. Most organized uh, group visits tend to take place during uh, major Tijani and Muslim, and Muslim festivals. Among the religious celebrations, the night that Sheikh Ahmed Tijani saw the Prophet in Busamhun, known as Layt al-Katmiya, attracts large numbers of pilgrims from Africa and the, its diaspora. Likewise, the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad is celebrated twice. The first celebration coincided with his birthday and the second one week after. This enabled Tijani, who could not attend the first celebration for any reason, to pay their ziyarah to the saint. Another celebration is the 27th of the month of Rajab, which coincides with the nocturnal, nocturnal ascension of the Prophet Laylatul Isra wal Mi'raj. And finally, the last 10 days of the Muslim month of Ramadan are also another period of uh, a visit of uh, very large uh, groups to Fez, and some large group of hundreds of people would visit the major Tijani uh, sites in Morocco and Algeria. Some would stay in uh, Fez on their way to or from the Hijaz, where they performed the lesser pilgrimage to Mecca. The growth of the West African diaspora in the West is another factor that stimulated the religious tourism industry in North Africa. In the post-colonial period, West Africa experienced a huge labor migration. Some migrated within West Africa to more affluent uh, countries. From the 1980s, large contingents were immigrating to Asia, to Europe, and the Americas. Toward the turn of the 21st century, sizable West African communities were found all over the world, from Tokyo to Melbourne, from Turin to Buenos Aires, from Paris to New York. Remittances of this diaspora are estimated at billions of dollars and have made a great impact on West African development. Member of, members of this diaspora contributed to the growth of uh, the religious tourism in their home countries by offering full uh, pilgrimage packages to Mecca or Fez to their parents. Fez is now the site of permanent settlement of a West African diaspora, which offers uh, uh, hospitality uh, service to pilgrims. 
The stay in Fez is a period of intense spirituality. Pilgrims devote most of their time to praying in the Zawiya. Some of the uh, pilgrims are hosted in the Zawiya, others in nearby hotels such as Hotel Tumbuktu, Hotel Tijani, or pilgrim residence not far from uh, the Zawiya. There are also VIP packages offering a stay in five-star hotels in Fez, such as uh, Royal Mirage and regular bus services. Regular bus services is organized from the hotel to the Zawiya where pilgrims attended the five daily Muslim prayers and the Tijani collective rituals of Wazifa, recite the Quran, make invocations, etc. But Fez, where Ahmad Tijani was buried, is not the only Tijani site of pilgrimage. At his death in 1855, one of his close disciples, Ali Tamasini, assumed the leadership of the Tijaniya and returned to Algeria with part of the family of Ahmad Tijani. There, they established several major zawiya, of which three attract uh, huge numbers of pilgrims in Tamasin, Busemun, and Ainumadi. Now, let me discuss uh, the pilgrimage in Algerian side. The Algerian branch of the Tijaniya strove to cultivate its own ties with Tijani in West Africa through correspondence or regular tours in West Africa. Some Algerian descendants of Ahmed Tijani settled in other African countries. One such is Muhammad Habib Tijani, a great grandson of Ahmed Tijani who settled in Senegal in the 50s. In Senegal, he married uh, three daughters of prominent uh, Senegalese Tijani families. When he died in Senegal, it was the point the Sangomar, the personal aircraft of Abdou Diouf, the then president of Senegal, which repatriated his corpse to Ainumadi, Algeria, accompanied by prominent Senegalese officials and Muslim dignitaries. This alerted the Algerian government to the important political weight of the Tijaniya in West Africa and led to the revision of the reorientation of the Algerian government attitude toward the Tijaniya. By the way, uh, the FLN government was uh, very much anti-Sufi uh, at the beginning uh, you know, of, of colonial rule, and the agrarian reform led to confiscating most of the land of the Sufi. But later on, they, uh, they, 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 they changed their, uh, uh, their policy towards Sufi orders. Now I want to address the rise to prominence of West African pilgrimage sites. In West Africa itself, several sites of religious pilgrimage are drawing crowds from all over Africa and the African diaspora. Some of these religious gatherings parallel in scope the great Muslim pilgrimage in the Holy Land. The largest such gatherings happen during the month of the birth of the Prophet Muhammad, and there is consensus among Muslims that the Prophet was born in the month of Rabi' al-Awwal, which is the third month of the Muslim calendar. Hundreds of thousands of people head to major religious cities to celebrate the event. The celebration starts from the beginning of the month of Rabi' al-Awwal. In religious cities like Tivawan or Medina Kaulah in Senegal, thousands of people meet every night from the beginning of the month to recite poems in praise of the Prophet, and especially the poem named uh, Burda, um, which was composed by, uh, which means mental in, in, in English, which was composed by Sharafuddin al-Busayri al-Sanhaji, who died in 1296. Al-Busayri, so the story goes, 
suffered a stroke and became paralyzed. One night, he dreamed of the Prophet Muhammad covering his paralyzed side with the mantle. Awake, he found himself miraculously cured. As a token of his gratitude for the miraculous prophetic intervention, Al-Busiri composed this poem, which is the most celebrated of all the panegyrics of the Prophet, to my knowledge. The celebration of the Mawlid culminates in the night of the 12th of the Rabi' al-Awwal, when men and women wear their most beautiful African clothes, and for the majority it would be new clothes, and will spend the whole night awake reciting the Quran and panegyrics of the Prophet. Many will compose new poems in praise of the Prophet and other Muslim saints. The known speakers give lectures centered on the biography of the Prophet. In the last few years, the celebration of the Mawlid has also included organizing academic conferences in which prominent scholars would address issues of concern for Muslims in the world, development, diplomacy, Sufism as a solution to, contem to contemporary problems for the world. In the aftermath of September 11th, when Islam has been associated with terrorism, many such molded lectures tended to emphasize the role of Sufism in fostering peace as opposed to Wahhabism or Salafism, which they charge as nurturing terrorism and violence. Such academic conferences are celebrated throughout West Africa and the Maghreb. Because Muslims typically name their children uh, one week after their birth, which is the opportunity for great celebration, the celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birth is extended to the seventh, uh, to the seventh day after his birth, uh, considered as the day of his naming ceremony. And many Muslim communities uh, uh, celebrate uh, <coughs> Many celebrate the day of naming as intensely as the day of the Mawlid itself. There are other special events centered on the life of West African saints that also draw huge crowds. In Senegambia, the Sufi order of the Muridiya organized a festival every year named Grand Maggal of Tuba, which is the largest celebration, religious or secular, in Senegal, and which has now become one of the most popular pilgrimages in the world. In Wolof, Maggal means celebration, and the great Maggal of Tuba originates in a request of Ahmadu Bamba in which he asked that his followers celebrate the anniversary of his exile to Gabon by the French. In the last years, three million people had participated in the Maggal, one million pilgrims and two million local inhabitants. The large number of pilgrims in Tuba during the Grand Maggal demands a huge degree of organization and logistical management. The human and material resources mobilized by the Senegalese state, the Murid, and the inhabitants of Tuba is huge. The police and fire department of the Senegalese state are fully deployed to provide uh, security on the roads and within Tuba itself. Murid associations called Daira are responsible for maintaining different pilgrimage sites within Tuba itself and feeding pilgrims. The Tijaniya Sufi orders also organize celebrations in West Africa in addition to the Mawlud. The largest such celebration which parallels in scope the Maggal is the annual celebration of the birthday of Sheikh Ibrahim Yas who died 
in uh, seven, 1975 and was a major Tijani leader. Although it's uh, celebrated in many African countries where uh, uh, the Sheikh's disciples reside, the biggest uh, celebration takes place annually in Nigeria where the number of his disciples run in the millions. Uh, and uh, could you show please the... the, 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 the <laughs> So uh, according to the people who attended, this was the celebration of in, in May 2014. There were definitely more people there than, than, than Arafat, like, like more than the three million that, that uh, meet in Arafat that is in the pilgrimage uh, to, to Mecca. Now I would like to conclude. I have analyzed the transformation of the tradition of Muslim pilgrimage in West Africa and argued that West Africans have been performing the pilgrimage uh, to Mecca for a millennium. The spread of Sufi orders the spread of Sufi orders from the Maghreb and especially the Tijaniya created new pilgrimage sites in North Africa. Prior to the 20th century, the trip was long and unsafe. Many would never return home. The majority of pilgrims were students in search for knowledge or scholarly credentials. They spent time along the way or in the pilgrimage sites to study. When West Africa fell under European colonial domination in the 20th century, restrictions were imposed on the travel of citizens by the colonial state which closely monitored the pilgrimage. It determines quota of Africans allowed to go to the Hajj. Only uh, loyal colonial subjects were permitted to travel in the colonially sponsored pilgrimage. But the trip was shorter. The round trip travel to uh, Mecca lasted between three and six months because uh, sometimes some pilgrims would still uh, uh, stay in centers of learning in North Africa or Egypt in their way to the Holy Land. Some of them traveling through Morocco could include a stop in Fez to perform the pilgrimage. It was also safer as pilgrims possessed uh, proper documentation. They were also assisted in the Holy Lands by the colonial consulates based in Jeddah or Riyadh. During colonial rule, some pilgrims traveled at great risk by foot and camel Without the permission of the colonial state, little is known about their uh, pilgrimage beside travel narratives. In the late 20th century, the nature and participation to the uh, pilgrimage and conditions of pilgrimage were radically transformed. The Saudi state, as I, as I showed, invested a lot of money to expand hosting infrastructure and ensure pilgrimage safety. 
the number of pilgrims multiplied exponentially. Technological development has now made air travel the only means of travel either to North Africa or the Holy Land. And many pilgrims are able to visit sites in North Africa and Saudi Arabia in a few days. The, uh, the shifts in pilgrimage have contributed to fragment the pilgrimage tradition and eliminate the itinerant scholar tradition. Previously, uh, scholars and students would visit many of the holy sites along the way to or from the holy lands. But now they can simply skip most of these sites by taking the plane. Consequently, the more regional pilgrimages have become separated from the Hajj pilgrimage tradition. However, pilgrims still include students who go to Morocco, Algeria, Saudi Arabia for studies and take advantage of their position as students there to make pilgrimage. Whereas before, scholars took advantage of the Hajj to pursue studies, now students take advantage of their international studies to pursue pilgrimage. Pilgrims also include young people, uh, but the most radical uh, transformation uh, is the uh, emergence of new sites of pilgrimage in West Africa that parallel the Holy Land. Show uh, slide seven. No, no, slide seven. Okay. Now, scholars of Christianity in Africa have been making the argument that the global center of Christianity has now left Europe and come to Africa. So you could see the number of Christians multiplied almost 70-fold in the 20th century, from 7 to 470 million. Sub-Saharan Africa now is home to about one-fifth, one, uh, one in five of all Christians in the world. Now, there is a very recent two, uh, 2017 uh, Pew um, uh, study which project that uh, in 2060, 42% uh, of the global uh, Christian population will be in Africa. But in a way, we could understand the center so they, 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 they have argued that the global center of Christianity has now left Europe and come to Africa. But in a way, we could understand the center of many Muslim traditions have, as having done the same thing before Christianity ever come to the region. And this is certainly the case for Sufism. We know that African Sufi leaders have been political brokers, powerful economic actors, state builders, and prominent intellectuals. In his study of 19th century Sufi orders in West Africa. Bradford Martin argued that dedication to mysticism in no way hindered many of Sufi leaders from being practical leaders of causes quite as much as being mystics or intellectuals, and that most of them had expressed their ideas in writing. Also, most of them were very much in the con contemporary intellectual mainstream. They rejected blind imitation of what earlier thinkers had done. That point was further confirmed by an ontology bringing together from a comparative perspective the intellectual production of four towering uh, figures of African Islam in the 19th and 20th century, Ahmad Ubamba, Usman Danfojo, Omar Tal, and Sheikh Ibrahim. So the authors, Rudolf Ware, 
Zachary Wright here present and Amir Said argued that the material they present forces us to consider Sufi scholars at the center of the intellectual history of the region. The impact of their teachings is greater than that of any other intellectuals, and their followings run in the tens of millions. Uh, gatherings organized to celebrate their lives and achievements attract, attract millions of people. There are, there are no doubt among the greatest religious gathering in the world as we have in the entire world as we have seen in one of these videos. As a central pillar of Islam, the Hajj is one of the most well-known and popular pilgrimage traditions in the world. It is easily recognized and familiar to Muslims and non-Muslims alike. West African participation in this massive global tradition is as old in the region as Islam itself. It has constituted a central future in the development and flourishing of Islam in West Africa. It has also historically been linked to other important sites and traditions of pilgrimage from the Atlantic coast to the Holy Land in present-day Saudi Arabia. Modern geopolitical, technological, and economic changes have quite revolutionized practically every aspect of this tradition. And these dramatic shifts in one of the most important rituals, in one of the most important Muslim rituals, has surprisingly largely slipped under the radar. As more people and different types of people engage in pilgrimage, the nature and purpose of the pilgrimage, the physical, condition, the physical conditions of pilgrimage, and many other factors have changed dramatically. So has its effect on the practice of Islam, and especially on Islamic erudition in West Africa, and for that matter, other parts of the Muslim world. So this going project, which includes also a documentary that I am preparing now, seeks to document and analyze the current state of affairs in ways, in ways that have previously been impossible both in terms of new ways of observing and documenting the experiences of pilgrimage, but also the new and innovative aspects of the pilgrimage tradition itself. So understanding the importance and the experience of pilgrimage traditions is of critical importance in West Africa, no doubt. But a deep understanding of the changing nature of pilgrimage in this region could also put us on the cutting edge of understanding the changing nature of one of the most important Islamic rituals and how this affects Islamic intellectual history on a global scale. Thank you very much. Uh, last uh, slide, I want to acknowledge the financial support of the HDS fac uh, Faculties uh, Research Grant, not for the conference, but for the research, the annual. The CAS uh, report, uh, CAS uh, Faculty, uh, Center of African Study also, uh, Research Grant, the Weatherhead Discretionary Grant, and also comments, uh, you know, by uh, colleagues. At when I presented uh, this uh, research at the CSWR, uh, thanks to Frank Cloney and all those who attended, and also thanks to uh, IODJ and Rudamini Ogunaiki for comments on early draft of the paper. Thank you very much.
only two minutes to ask questions. <laughs> All right, so then, uh, yes. We're allowed to ask questions? Of course. Zakaria Ahmed Salem, Northwestern University. I have a question. I didn't hear you speak about commodification, which is somehow somewhat relieving. But how about commodification of Hajj and how it's, it is related to piety and transformation from piety? So what is your take on commodification of pilgrimage? Well, I, I didn't use the uh, word commodification. But uh, you know, I explained that you know uh, there was a huge uh, boom in the tourism industry, in the construction industry, in uh, and uh, you know uh, the, the the if you go you know in the surroundings of the mosque, it has completely changed by new hotels that have been built. You know, with the very strange architecture uh, now and. Uh, you know, with rooms and suites costing, uh, you know, thousands of dollars. And, uh, um, yeah, and I, I definitely, you know, uh, and, and, and also so many, I haven't had the time to discuss that, but even in, in the West, the Muslim diaspora, uh, you know, the, the, there are uh, thousands of, uh, you know, people who are traveling uh, regularly, performing the Hajj, and all side, all kinds of packages that are offered to people to perform pilgrimage, to do tourism, etc. And definitely, yeah, uh, I didn't have the time to, you know, I didn't use the word, but I, I believe that uh, uh, there was commodification of, of the Hajj. Yes. Um, I can't let a northeastern colleague. I can't let a northeastern. Uh, Northwestern colleagues speak without Northeastern being represented <laughs> as well. Mike, uh, he's from North, North, Northeastern University. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Usman, you spoke uh, eloquently about the transformation, including the West African diaspora and mm. its effect on uh, Hajj. But what about the converse? The West African diaspora that has gone to Mecca and remains there. Mm. There is a significant um, immigration mm -hmm. phenomenon. Mm -hmm. How new is that? You know, th uh, th there is a wonderful book by uh, uh, Shafi Ahmed on uh, dealing with that. And actually, the argument of the book is that many people think that Wahhabism was brought to uh, West Africa, and it was, uh, you know, after the oil boom that, you know, people in West Africa started to, you know, embrace Wahhabism. And his argument was that those who went uh, during the 19th century, the period called Hijra Doctrine, when they were leaving, doing Hijra because they were fleeing European colonial rule, among the, you know, the learned among them, they uh, helped the, you know, the Wahhabi state in preaching and education. They, they taught, they preached in Saudi, in Saudi Arabia and outside Saudi Arabia. So yes, definitely there is a, that diaspora, of course, including also some people who were enslaved during the pilgrimage. But 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 there is there is an old diaspora from I don't know from Bilal, the first Muslim of Islam, to to those who were taken there as slaves, to those who migrated, you know, voluntarily to the Holy Lands. Uh, yeah, and and the 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 book of Shamfi, you know, uh, you know, I I can't remember the title exactly. 
address that, you know, that they played an important role, that, uh, that West Africans were not just the recipients of uh, Wahhabism, but they, they contributed, you know, intellectually to, 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 the, to preaching, to teaching, etc. Yes, just and maybe that will be the last question yeah. because it's, uh, it's a short one. Um, in the contemporary situation, because of this acceleration of, of travel and communication, mm. Muslims more and more can do the Hajj several times. Mm. And I have heard and be part of discussion about the, the religious validity <laughs> of, of doing the Hajj several times. So mm. I wanted to know if in your research you have heard the same uh, religious discussion about that? Um. Well, I think it's uh, mandatory just to do it once, you know, uh, to, because uh, for those who, who, who can afford it, they must, at they must do it once. But, uh, more than one is not necessary. But um, actually, it's the people who can afford who go. So, so maybe the, 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 the numbers may, might have increased. But, um, and to some extent, you know, uh, it has become affordable to, to, to other people, but, um, but, but, but I think that uh, maybe the, 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 uh, still the majority of the Muslims cannot, 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 cannot perform it. Now, now it's, uh, it's to my knowledge, it's only uh, obligatory to perform it once. Other than that, it's not uh, obligatory. And even actually, uh, we were told that uh, the state of Saudi Arabia you know, ch ch uh, impose a penalty on people who had performed the pilgrim in the last five years. They have to pay a few hundred dollars more. This is not true from the from people living in the United States, but that's what I was told in you know from Africa that those who performed it in the last five years, if they want to go again, they have to pay a higher fee. Okay, I think we will stop now. It's seven o'clock, and thank you very much.